Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today, my guest on American Glutton is Bill Rapier. Bill is the owner and lead instructor of American Tactical Shooting Instruction, LLC. He is a retired Navy SEAL and spent over 14 years at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. I'm really excited to talk to Bill. You can find him on Instagram at AmTacShooting. Bill Rapier, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Ethan, thank you for having me on. So I've had the privilege of training with you, and you always throw in some kind of a dynamic exercise that puts together everything we've worked on into a drill that usually requires physical exertion. And I was always really impressed that you did that, number one. And I always look at the things you do in your life, which to me are incredibly extreme, things that I could not fathom tackling. The modern Minuteman program, the the exercises where you, you and, and Chainsaw go off into the woods for a couple of days and have 50 miles to cover with heavy gear. So it was very surprising to me to come to hear that you are concerned at all or have to be concerned at all with your diet. Oh, absolutely. And and I don't mean in a way of like, no, you just eat whatever you want. I never thought that. I thought of you as a healthy guy, but you actually diet, which I found to be surprising. Yeah, it's it's one of those, you know, as I, my, my back seized up on me the first time when I was 23 years old and I had no clue what was going on. I was on a trip down in Florida, a dive trip down there and Corman took me to the hospital and they took x-rays, you know, we thought it was something acute. And they said, oh yeah, you have arthritis. And I looked at the doctor and I'm like, doc, I'm 23 years old. I can't have arthritis. And he goes, he shows me the x-ray and he goes, you see that stuff? That's arthritis. And so basically, but before that point in my life, I was just trying to get big and strong. And then after that, the, the whole process has changed. And I started looking at it as, it doesn't matter if I'm big and strong and then injured every couple months because then I can't do my job. And whether your job is, you know, actually kicking doors or, you know, whatever your job is, you need to be able to do it. And if you're broken half the time, you can't do your job. I mean, even just to picking kids up, you know, I mean, right. just as, as a family man, like if you can't, if you can't pick your kids up because your back is hurting you so bad, you can't do your job. And so I really started changing my whole focus on, you know, going from being as big and as strong as possible to number one, I just need to be healthy. And number two, I need to have endurance to be able to do, you know, strength endurance to do the job. And then, yeah, I do, I do need to have a strength as well. Um, and so I, so first, the first thing that happened was, was that shift in, in what I was trained for workout wise. Um, but then as I got older and got into those, you know, mid thirties, now all of a sudden you can't just eat like, like you do when you're in your late teens and early twenties. Uh, and so that is really, that's, you know, every time I, I talk about this, it's, that's the first thing when, when I talk about the fitness component, it's actually, you know, when, once you hit past 35, it's, it's more about what you're eating is actually just as important as the fitness that you're doing. Right. And so like prior to that, you can kind of run your body into walls, eat whatever you want. And there's a sense of resiliency. Now, like you were one of the youngest guys to go through buds, right? I, I do remember somebody told me I was that. 18 when 18. I went through. There have been guys that, that have been 17 that started. Uh, I was 17 when I joined the Navy, and then I was a few months into being 18 by the time I checked in. And at that point, are you thinking – I mean, you said it wasn't until a few years later that you were thinking about anything like that, but that's – you know, as a civilian – we are not privy to everything that occurs in the military, but the, the buds is something that we are shown 
quite freely what you guys had to go through. And to me, that is like the most extreme thing anybody could do to their body or one of them. It definitely, that, that's a huge part of why uh, I had arthritis in my back at 23 was, you know, running, running with a boat on your head and just doing all the things that you do going through runs is not the, not the healthiest for you, but uh, it does, it does get rid of a lot of people and make sure that the, the right people stick around. Right. And so is the, is the switch to, I mean, I, I think anybody that can do that has got to believe that they can just physically do anything when you're told you have arthritis and you have to reevaluate the way you're going to go about training your body. Is that, is that mentally tough to confront? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't, I mean, it was really, it was a process. It wasn't like I, you know, I mean, looking back on what the doctors told me to do, they gave me some drugs and said, go lay on the couch for a few days. Right. And which is absolutely the, the absolute opposite of what you should be doing. Uh, because it just seizes up even more. So this was most definitely a process of going from, you know, doing the traditional bodybuilding style lifts and high mileage heel striking running to then I started, you know, first we got involved with CrossFit a little bit and then we got, you know, we were introduced to Mark Twight and we started, you know, with his Jim Jones program. And so the whole thing shifted from, you know, the, I mean, and that's, that's all I knew at the time was the, you know, the traditional bodybuilding style lifting and, and just, you know, go out there and run the way they'd shown me in cross country and, and track. And then having to shift all of that definitely wasn't a, didn't happen overnight. It was something that, it was a process and, you know, I didn't recover overnight either. It was, it was multiple years of, of, of shifting the way I work out. And then there's still, you know, you're always going to deal with injuries. I think that's another thing that, uh, just that you learn going through buds. And then, I mean, anyone that's a you know professional athlete or, or does something that, that requires a high physical output for their work, learns to recognize that if, if you wait and only do it when you're a hundred percent, you'll never train, you know, whether or not you're, you're doing jiu-jitsu or, you know, training to be on a hot truck crew. If you are, if you wait till you're a hundred percent, you'll never do it. You have to learn how to train through injuries and just modify your training. Right. And what about nutrition at that point? Is, is nutrition a factor going back to when you're, kind of the beginning of your evolution of thinking about this is nutrition something you keyed in on early not really or not seriously anyways i mean i was when i was young and just trying to pack on the pounds you know it was metarax and creatine and agent orange and or ultimate orange whatever that stuff was called you know it was all these you know i would go into the supplement store and, and you know buy half the stuff on the shelf because it promised to make you bigger and stronger and faster right and I've really gone completely away from that, you know, as, as time has gone on, because honestly, I, I just didn't see the results with that. Uh, now what we try and do just like family wise is, uh, really it's, it's a book that my wife got I don't know, probably eight years ago or nine years ago called nourishing traditions. And it's basically just eat real foods, you know, eat, eat grass fed butter, eat grass fed meats, eggs from chickens that are actually running around eat very little sugar you know so just kind of a if, if you look at what did our great-grandparents do 100 years ago but more eating that way and so you know as, as a family we started doing that and that i think was way healthier for me than than how i had been eating before that and then i started paying more attention to i mean i think that the difference between a a, a feedlot or, you know, a, an industrial chicken versus like the chickens that we raise. Right. I mean, when we, when we butcher our chickens, like you can't buy a chicken like that with yellow, you know, good yellow fat on it. The only way they get the yellow fat is from eating grass and bugs. And even your, you know, the, the best, uh, you know, quote unquote free range bird that you buy at the supermarket, you know, organic free range is, you know, it's free range because it doesn't have to stay in the cage all day, but it's most definitely not running around eating grass. Right. 
And that, I mean, that's the eggs too, right? That's how you get like the hundred, hundred percent. Yeah. With the eggs. I mean, you can, and I never, I mean, it's, it's, you know, internally I'm, I'm, I'm laughing right now because I'm, this was not something that I was really into. Uh, this was kind of, my wife was into this and would, would talk to me about it. And now, now I am somewhat into it because I do see the benefit of it. But I mean, if I take a, if you take a supermarket egg, doesn't, doesn't matter. You have an organic, you know, quote unquote organic free range egg and you crack that next to one of my eggs. I mean, it's immediately noticeable. Like our eggs are, the yolk is more orange. Uh, the white is more viscous. Uh, the yolk doesn't just, you know, break apart on you. I mean, there's, there's, you know, and that's just from, it's, it's a healthier animal, which means it's, it's healthier product, which means we end up healthier. Yeah. And do you do intermittent fasting? Yes. So on a normally, <laughs> I can just see all the guys that train with me going, Hey, wait a minute. I didn't see you doing that uh, last time you thought of course. Uh, you know, I, I kind of have to, I've got when I'm on the road and I've got when I'm at home, uh, it's just too, it can be a little bit challenging on, on the road to, to do. I will still sometimes it just, it kind of varies like where I'm at training cycle wise. Uh, you know, the, the last three, well, the previous three years, we've done that uh, sniper patient challenge race in September. And so I was, you know, cutting weight leading up to that. And then in, after that, I'd let myself put a little bit of weight on because it's noticeable. You know, we're up in Idaho and I like skiing and snowmobiling and all that. And I can tell a big difference in how cold I am <laughs> based off of, you know, five or 10 pounds of, of weight difference. Wow, that's amazing. So that's kind of been my cycle is is I let I let myself get a little bit heavier, you know, five, ten pounds heavier during the winter time. And then as spring comes around again, I can I can increase my mileage again on the road and then start start cutting back down again. This year we didn't do the race. This year we did a uh we attempted the Wind River Highline route. <laughs> that's uh we didn't end up actually doing the whole thing. We and it's pretty. Is this okay if we delve into this? Yeah, I would love bit. to because this is the this is the extreme stuff I'm talking about. All right. So, the Wind River Highline route is a route, and then the one that we were going to try and do was kind of coined by a guy named Andrew Starker. And it's 97 miles in the Wind River Range. But if you do the whole thing, it's 30,000 vertical feet of elevation change. You hit two 13,000 foot peaks. And you end up staying, you start at like 7,200 feet, and then you end up camping between like 10 and 11,000, the majority of it. And it's just, you know, go hit hit one pass, go down 2,000 feet, and then hit another pass. So the goal was to do that with modern man loadout. So with, oh my with God. a tool capable of shooting five to 700 yards, uh, four magazines, radios, all that stuff. So we were... You know, it was, we had a legit loadout going into it. I was at 47 and a half pounds uh, going into it. So we, and then we, we dealt with uh, one of our guys started vomiting like two miles into it. And this is not, not a thing on him. He, he had trained a bunch for it. It's just, he'd gotten a little bit dehydrated. It was a long, it was about a four hour drive from Jackson to Landers. The lander where the you know Cliff Bruce's bridge is where we started from, and uh, he just got a little bit dehydrated, and and we're two miles into it, probably climbed about 800 vertical, and he goes, hold on, I got I got to sit down and, and look at something, and next thing you know, he's laying down in the middle of the trail, <laughs> so yeah, I had to go into a little bit of hey authority voice, all right, let's get you in the shade, we're gonna take a long break, drink some water. You know, pushed some rehydration salts. We vomited a couple times, and then you know, it's just—it's one of those altitude sickness is something that if you're if you're in the mountains, you're gonna deal with it. You just got to keep an eye and make sure it doesn't turn into acute mountain sickness. You know, with either the you know cerebral edema or uh, pulmonary edema. As long as that's not going on, then then you can work through it. I mean, I had a headache the whole time. The other guy that we did it with had, had a headache the first two days or so. And then after about two days, I, I was fine as well. But so 
first guy down, you know, down for a while at, at, at about the two mile mark. And then we, we, pushed. we got about 13 miles in that first day. We camped at about nine o'clock at night at 10, five. So, you know, again, like the, the, the better way to do it is, you know, climb high, sleep low and, you know, kind of slowly let your body acclimate. But we were on a timeline to try and do this thing in five days. So there was, there was no time for that. The next day, we knew weather was coming in, but we, and then we were still, my buddy had had the altitude stuff going on. So we kind of talked about it and said, well, let's, let's push on. We've got, we've got other places where there are outs if, you know, if we need to. So it was about a 3,000 foot climb onto the uh, Wind River Peak, which is one of the, one of the 13,000 footers in the Wind River Range. And we got, we could see, I mean, it was just such pretty awesome. As soon as you get to about 11 or right around 11,000 feet, it just really opens up, no more trees. And you're just looking at these thousand foot granite faces and, you know, blue lakes and glaciers and just super cool, uh, just amazing, amazing country up there. And we, so we, we climbed slow going got to within about five, 600 feet of the summit and the weather just hit hard, uh, like full on blowing snow. The, you know, the wind just keep kept picking up. We think it was around 70 miles an hour, um, when we were on the summit. So that was exciting being up there. I'm just constantly, I'm like, all right, how's everyone doing? Right. Like, you know, we need to, you know, at that point we had all, all of our layers on and, you know, still cold and, and the, the, the descent off of that, off of the West side is the, the harder part. So, you know, we get to the top and we're looking down, you can't see super far. So we start, we start pushing down and it's basically 2000 feet of scree and talus, which basically is just anything from gravel size rock to, you know, half of a car size boulders and and everything in between so some of it is is very stable and some of it is you think is stable and it's not and then all the the you know the small stuff is not stable at all so that was a challenge getting down uh having trucking poles was huge that was probably the the hike that that i've been on that like it was most valuable on especially on that descent right there yeah so push down and another one of our guys tweaked his knee on the descent so the second day we moved eight miles in like 12 hours. Uh, so that was, that was a good, you know, we, and we climbed a little over 3000 that day and descended a little over 2000, uh, made camp and it was, it had been snowing on us most of the day. We were soaking wet. We actually, we, my plan was to push on a little bit further, but it was, it was last light. It was right around eight o'clock. And, yeah, everyone's wet and tired and you know, somewhat hurt. So we we came across a nice camp spot and there was some, some firewood there too. So we ended up making a fire and kind of trying to dry ourselves out a little bit. And then, you know, crashed that night in my baby sack with snow coming down. It's pretty, pretty awesome for, that was either the last day of August or the first day of September. <laughs> wow. And then the next morning was kind of, you know, just looking at, okay, we haven't, we would have to cover 20 miles for the next four days every day. Right. And we hadn't covered 20 miles in a single day yet. And now we have, you know, a guy with a hurt knee, the guy with the altitude sickness had, you know, had recovered from that. He was fine. All of us were feeling better altitude wise. So we said, all right, we'll make the, we'll make the call once we get over Jackass Pass, which is, kind of a famous, you know, Circuit Towers is like a really famous climbing area in the Wind Rivers. I mean, it's just amazing. Like you get over and there's just these thousand foot faces everywhere. Just, you know, in these two beautiful lakes down at the bottom of it and just absolutely amazing. We got up there and said, all right, guys, well, we can, you know, at, at the pace we're going, we're probably not going to make it. So we can, we can detour and turn this into a, a big loop about 30 miles back. So we ended up doing that, taking a couple more days to get back. So we were five days total on the trail. And it was a great, great experience. You know, disappointing that we didn't do uh, what we had set out to do, but a lot of value in setting goals and then something that you have to train for. 
Yeah. You know, I, I, I've said with, with the Stanford Adventure Challenge race, I've always said that regardless of whether or not I even, you know, made it to the start line, I'm better at my job for having trained for it because it's one of those things that, you know, if you, I mean, my, my main job is teaching shooting and fighting and navigation and, you know, some of those backcountry skills. So if I end up going out there and shaming myself because you know, I don't do the fitness component and I'm not disciplined enough to, to do the, the diet component, then that could have a real bottom line, you know, in, negative impact on, you know, putting food on the table for the family. So I think it's really good to have things like that, that you, that you put out there and then, you know, goals or, Hey, I'm going to go walk this section of, you know, the Appalachian or Pacific crest or whatever it is. Or, and then tell other people because it's harder to back out once you've told a bunch of people right. and then do it with friends that will then hold you accountable. Cause you know that if, I mean, that's, that's what I was telling to all my friends that I invited. I just said, Hey, like, if you do this, like you better show up in shape because if you, if you show up and, and the rest of us have put countless hours of blood, sweat and tears into getting ready for this and you haven't, then, you know, we're not just going to leave you now, you know, now you caused all of us to not be able to do it. Right. And extra work for you. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. So I've been in the backwoods with you. I've seen your capabilities and and then I know you do stuff like the Sniper Adventure Challenge and that is 50 miles or 30 miles. So that race it's a 36 hour race. 36 uh, hours. and how far you walk is kind of up to you. We have walked anywhere from I think 40 miles 40 to mid fifties, I think is, is about what we've done each year. Uh, and that's just, that's a continuous, uh, you basically, you're, you're continuously doing land navigation. So from one, you know, they, they give you a, a list of waypoints, you plot them, and then they'll have a list of, of challenge points, which might involve shooting challenges or random weird, we throw a bag over your head and handcuff you and escape <laughs> like challenges like that uh to you know some challenges that we looked at and we're like nah we'll hard, hard pass on that one one, <laughs> one of them was uh roll your body for like a half a mile oh my god like <laughs> we looked and we're like wait a minute this gets us how many points and like how mangled are we going to be after this and how long is it going to take well, yeah nah. <laughs> pass you know but that that's part of the uh you know, that's part of the, the calculus with, with that race. It's just, it's just figuring out, Hey, what, you know, what can we do? What can't we do? And then, and then all of it is walking and we just basically walk until we're too tired to, you know, we, I, I call it stupid tired. Uh, you know, I, I will get to the point where I'm falling asleep while I'm walking. Uh, I have that gift or curse, depending on which way you look at it, but <laughs> having tracking poles for that definitely helps me as well because I kind of catch myself on the poles but when you know, whenever you do get stupid tired, we'll just uh, just lay lay the pack down. You know, put a whatever warmy layer I have, which for that race is not much. I normally have got an R1 layer and a, and a, like a really really lightweight windbreaker, and that's it. So I just put that on, and it's it had been held in Wyoming at like seven thousand feet, kind of high desert. So. 20, you know, 20 minutes of sleep and then I'm jackhammering cold and then it's time to get up and keep pushing on. So that's a good, it's a good event. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot to consider taking on over the course of 36 hours. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And you've got to manage, you've got to manage your fluid levels, right? How, how much water are you consuming? Uh, you've got to manage your salt intake. I mean, I, I went from, Actually, I started doing this when I was still active duty, and you know, I, I tried messing around with with Cytomax or you know the, the Gatorade rehydrate stuff. And you just when you're when you're sweating to the point where I bring this example up, I, I came back off a mission one time. 
in Afghanistan and I looked like I had rolled around in a mud puddle and it was bone dry. It was a mixture of my sweat and dust. Wow. Like that. <laughs> so when, when you're sweating that bad, you can't, you can't drink enough rehydration fluids unless you're actually drinking true rehydration fluids. So I started taking those Enderlite pills that are basically just, you know, modern, the modern equivalent of a salt pill. And that's a huge, can tell a huge difference when I'm taking that stuff. Yeah. Just cognitively, like your, your ability to think and reason, I, I believe really goes down as, you know, it, as soon as that salt balance gets out of whack in your body. And so keep making sure that, that you stay on top of it with those pills is, is huge. I'll always take stools at black baggy and throw, you know, if I'm going out for a day walk, you know, maybe throw 10 of them in there. And that's, that's way more than I'm going to take, but it's, it's always good to have a little bit extra with you. But, you know, on a really, really, you know, long evolution, you know, multiple, you know, once you get above two hours or so, if it's below two hours, then really not. Um, but once you get above two hours and taking one of those about, an hour depending on what other salty foods you're eating is, is really big. Yeah. And there is a diet component leading up to a challenge like that. Absolutely. So what I would do is as, as we got closer and closer, I would you know, be more and more strict on my intermittent fasting. And then I would try and do blocks of keto. So one to two week blocks of, of just going on, on keto diet. And I found that's, you know, once I'm into it, I'm generally talking about a pound a day. Uh, and I'm still able to eat something definitely feel weaker in my workouts when I'm doing that. Uh, this last time I did a, I did a two week block leading up to, uh, I think it was in late July or early August, something like that this year, leading up to the, the walk that we just did, the Linderver route. And I think on, on day one of the, uh, the diet I did, you know, normally Monday morning is, is long run day for me. So I think on day one, I did a 10 mile run on Monday, a week into it. So the, the following Monday, I ran to walk one, ran to walk one. Right. And it's just, you know, just not, but I think it's okay. It's just as long as you're still able to do something. I've done other diets or fasts where I've just like tried to not do anything or not eat anything. And I've just felt so weak that I couldn't, you know, I, you know, and, and a lot of it is motivation, you know, you, you just feel weak. So you go, you try and go out and it, it becomes more of a problem. And then you just feel so weak while you're, while you're running, you end up walking and, uh, so when, when stuff like that happens, like, I, I think it can be detrimental because then you just lost a couple of days of working out and, and then you start eating again anyways. So I think it's really important as you're, as you're doing this stuff, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be so horrible for you that you do it one time and then, and then don't ever do it again. You know, the, the more you can make it a lifestyle type thing, like, which is why I like the intermittent fasting because I, I just, I, I don't even think it's really a big deal anymore. Yeah. And I remember when we first, you know, one of the things that Mark Twight had talked about was this idea of a depletion run. And so like when we were training for Denali, we did, it was once a month or so because we, we thought it was such a big deal. Like wouldn't eat any food after like six o'clock, get up in the morning and only drink black coffee. And then we'd go run like 10 or 12 miles, something like that. Maybe it wasn't even that far, but it would, I remember we'd, we'd run down the beach and we'd run to Starbucks and do a shot of, shot of espresso and then run back. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, like, man, that's really hard. And we were, we were all running with heart rate monitors and kind of doing it at the, the slowest guys, the, the top end of his heart rate. And I just remember thinking that was a big deal. And now it's like, that's every time I go for a run. Right. <laughs> it's like most, almost any time I work out, that's the, the state that I'm in because I won't have eaten anything. It probably will be a little bit later than six o'clock. Uh, cause we normally dinner later than that. But, uh, I mean, I think about like this, this year, my, my longest run 
leading up to the event was a little over 13 miles. And, you know, that's a half marathon. And that's fasted? Yeah. You're doing that fasted? Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't even drink water while I'm doing it. <laughs> like, wow. I just, I drink some coffee, I pound a couple glasses of water, and I go out and run. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a crazy fast runner or anything. I mean, I'm, I'm slow as, as running standards go. But I enjoyed it, and it, it's a way for me to keep pounding, listen to stuff while I'm, while I'm going. Um, and it's just, it's a good, you know, but then, but then just thinking about like, man, this was, I mean, I remember doing rock and roll half marathon back in Virginia beach. And that was like, man, we got to train for this and got to make sure I eat my goo every 20 minutes and, you know, and, and water at every table. And like, you know, now I'm just like, yeah, no, it's just, just another training run. Like, so it's kind of cool. And I think that the, when you're doing the intermittent fasting, it really helps with that. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Do you think that if you had in the beginning, like when you, when you first started, like your first brush with that version of intermittent fasting, running down to Starbucks, grabbing a, a an espresso, do you think if you had thought like, I need to do this forever. It would have been overwhelming or just not even realistic. Like it sounds like you've create you create you did what you're supposed to do where you like lay in habits that you can build up into a lifestyle. Yes, and and that is that is absolutely the key right there. Yeah, I would have been overwhelmed if if, if I would have been told, "Hey, you're just not allowed to eat breakfast ever again." That would have been a huge problem. And and that's also that's not the right answer. It's it's not hey you don't ever do this again and this becomes this this sacred cow. It needs to be hey this is part of a, a lifestyle right like Sunday mornings we eat breakfast together as a family I eat breakfast with everyone you know and that's it helps keep things sane and I don't need it I kind of feel weird afterwards but you know we we make it a big family family event and you know it, that's that's a win right there right I think it's the same the same extreme can go either way. Like if, if we take something like intermittent fasting and say, this must be the way forever, then any kind of deviation can, can mess us up. And so there has to be some balance and it can be for whatever necessary reasons. I think food with the family, like I think about that. And I think in the past couple of years, that is probably one of the things that I've given up on or, or have not participated in enough that I, that I need to do more of, which is eating as a family because I'm so hyper-focused on what I need to eat that it rarely looks like what anybody else is eating. Yeah. Well, and that can definitely, like, that can cause some problems right there if, <laughs> I know my kids, when uh, I talk to my wife into doing it with me, this last this last time we went keto and all the kids are just like oh no we're not keto again (laughs) they know it's like you know my daughter likes to cook and you make make yummy treats and and i'm like no not not while dad's doing this like you can you know you can make them long gone as long as you eat them before i get home that's okay but yeah uh but there is you know like i think you just you do have to stay focused on what is you know bigger picture you know, eating, eating meals with people is like one of the ways that we form bonds. And so I think it's important that it is something that you can make a lifestyle that's just, Hey, this is normal. You know, whether it's the super strict keto or I wouldn't recommend anyone do strict keto for the rest of their life. Like, I think that would be, you know, I, I think that the whole just moderation more of the nourishing traditions, you know, eat real types of food, um, but then eat it in limited quantities, which is also, I think, one of the hardest things to do is, is to not, you know, if there's if there's a delicious meal in front of you, not to have three servings of it. <laughs> you know, when, when really, you know, hey, I, I'm probably going with, with a single serving. Like, that's actually my nutritional needs are being met with that. Yeah, I I hate to have any kind of moral judgment. I really don't think it feels, doesn't feel good to me. But when I do, when, you know, I live in a city and when I 
move around through the city and see how much excess is just constantly available it's tough it's tough to 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 be the arbiter of those decisions and go like i'm just here to fill up my gas i'm not here for a burrito and a bag of chips and a cheeseburger and you guys have good burritos out there that's one of the things i miss about socal is carnesada burritos oh man man. yeah (laughs) and and they're on every corner you can find somebody selling a great burrito yeah We, we don't get that up here i think that that sounds so awesome and such a great way to do it because you're truly in control of what of that entire ecosystem. You know what the chicken is eating. You, you know, you're providing it that food or, or setting it out in the area where it's going to eat. For sure. And that, that's one thing that as we've kind of gone down this path of, of, you know, discovering, you know, just, I guess, waking up that, hey, there, there's a big difference between a feedlot animal and, and an animal that you get from a, you know, a farmer. Not that, you know, there there are farmers that, that finish their their beef on feedlots, but uh, that there's a difference in the quality of the meat. You know, what is that, what is that cow that's on the feedlot? What's he eaten for the last, you know, couple months of his life? He's eating corn, you know, and it's, it's, it's not organic corn. Even if it was, that's not what cows designed to eat anyways. You know, it's Monsanto corn with, you know, glyphosate all over it, you know, which says it's not for human consumption. You know, the, the bags of corn do, but it's okay if, if you eat, you know, if, if you eat it after the cow has already eaten it. Yeah. You know, so I, I think the so as, as we've gone down this 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 road like i'll i'll look at something and i i'd much rather i don't care if it says usda organic on it if i go to a farmer and he says hey this is what i do with my like my cows eat grass if they're sick i give them shots you know maybe in the winter i give them a little bit of grain okay like i i will take that any day over a certified usda organic because that ends up becoming a big game Right. Yeah, you know, to get to get the certification, and then it's you know, with some people it can be you know, minimum minimum requirements. So I'd much rather like, uh, are you familiar with Joel Salatin? I know I've no I know the name. So he is. If you get him on, that would be a great one. But uh, he's like hero to the small time farmers. He's up in Northern Virginia, okay. and just basically does. He doesn't, he's never even, I don't think he's even tried to do USDA organic because his brand is better. You know, it's Polyface Farms. And right, the yes. restaurants around Northern Virginia pay, I believe, $30 for one of his chickens. Wow. I mean, it's, it, it's crazy, but they do it because, like, he's built this whole, I mean, his, you know, people from all over the country and all over the world want to go study with the guy because he's figured out how to do it, you know, healthy, sustainably you know, morally correct. Like he's just figured out how to do the farming piece the right way with, you know, intensive grazing, but then, you know, paddock shift. So the, the critters are only on one section of pasture for, you know, a half a day or maybe a full day. And then they shift to another section. And then he brings his birds in, but like immediately after the cows and the birds, you know, clean up all the stuff from the cows. And it's just, it's a pretty, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. But if you, you know, kind of, once you understand that, then it's, you know, I'd rather just talk with a farmer and find out, Hey, how do you raise your, how do you raise your animals? And if we agree on, you know, on, on the majority of it, then yeah. Can I buy a half a cow from you (laughs) or a quarter cow? And and a lot of farmers will do that. Uh, because it's, you know, it's an easy way to sell it. I've been thinking about this so much lately and, and, and thinking about, you know, Nassim Taleb, Taleb talks about um, fragile and anti-fragile. And the more efficient you make a system, the more fragile it becomes. And, and I think about yes. living in a city and how basically a city is just an attempt at making everything super efficient. Everybody is kind of playing their role so that the system operates and... I think we don't often think about the consequences of, you know, look, and and then I get into like, maybe Monsanto has fed a billion people. And so that the, 
the one million who got cancer, maybe that's an equal balance. And I just go like, yeah, okay, but it's still, you know, the, 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 the ecosystem that it's altering doesn't seem like a net positive, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that, you know, the whole, all those, all those fields that are being used to produce corn, you know, for, you know, for ethanol isn't, you know, that, that's not an efficient way of doing things. You know, the, the only reason that is profitable is because of uh, subsidies from the government. Right. And then, you know, a lot of that stuff, if it was just pasture, you'd be raising cows on it. Cows can live just fine off of grass. You know, I mean, that's, that's how, I mean, all the, that's what they're designed to eat, right. grass. So, yeah, that, I mean, that brings up a, a much bigger as to, you know, how, what is, you know, what is sustainable long-term, you know, and, and just the way that, you know, the fertilizers are pushed and, and what fertilizers and, and the, the quality of the nutrition that you're getting versus just, yeah, it's something that fills your belly. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's being, I don't necessarily think it's being thoroughly investigated. Like if we look at the amount of autoimmune disease real you know, scientific autoimmune disease that exists in our country versus, you know, a very impoverished country, which has kind of no trace of it. Now, maybe they have a, a, a lower average lifespan. So, I, you know, there are all these trades that I don't know how to sift through and you can pick any data point and just attack that without looking at the whole thing. But I have been thinking a lot about this and you know, the fact of the matter is when I go to get gas, I have to battle through the, the marketing and the availability of a bunch of stuff that I know is, is gonna cause me harm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this is probably the first time in, I mean, when I can't think of an example in history, when people that were poor were overweight. Right. It's you really, know, and, it's bizarre. Yeah. And malnourished. They're overweight while simultaneously being malnourished uh, uh, to a yeah. large degree, which is, again, kind of like, how, how, how is this being pulled off, you know? And, and, yeah. and, and how, how is it okay? How is this just, this standard is, is, is not being really attacked. And when it's attacked, you know, people get mad at you a little bit, um, it's a very, it's a very, very uh, curious time. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's it's a it's individual decision that you need to make for your family and for you know for your people. And you know, if you believe strongly, <laughs> you know, if something is not good, then you know, for if, if we're friends, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And you know, if if you disagree, okay, but I'm still going to tell you about it. Sure. Uh, because it's it's. I, you know, it's, it's valuable. It's, um, you know, you wouldn't, if you see your friends doing something that, that's, that you believe to be incorrect, you should, you should talk to them about it because you care about them. I think so. I, I, I think so. I, and I think that talking about the state of, you know, and look, I think health can be subjective, but I think that if we look at overall trends, this, this thing that, the the poorest people in this country are rapidly becoming the most obese and the most diseased you know this this is something that should be looked at you know some somehow yeah. that seems to like not compute in my head as a good outcome you know yeah I, I, yeah i mean you know it's diet, diet and lifestyle yeah i mean it's is it's, it's not it's not genetic. I mean, some of us have genetic predispositions for, for one thing or another, but I mean, that's, those are very small. It's, it's diet and lifestyle. Right. Yeah. I do at the end of the day, I, I would never take agency away from people. I think that at, at, yeah, we can all overcome this. I just think, I think that there requires some education and some communication and some kind of like, just even just confronting the situation, you know, I think, but I, but I, no, I totally agree. Look, uh, 
there's plenty of stuff that's readily available for me that I actively go like, I'm not going to participate in that. That's not for me. And, and that's a, that's a way of overcoming it. But I also think that there's, there's a, there seems to be some forces that I, 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 you know, I say that word and I don't know, I can't, I can't, it's not tangible to me. It's not something I could touch. It's just something I look at and go like, here's a really curious situation that, you know, very few people are talking about. Nobody's really upset about it, but it, it continues to get worse. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, there's some, there's a level of acceptance that, Oh, this is just what happens now. Like our kids are sicker than they were a hundred years ago, or, you know, we just have, you know, obesity. And I mean, we, we've got to force our children to go outside and, and, and play. Right. I mean, the, yeah, I mean, some of that is just, you have to look at it and go, what do you, if you don't want your kids playing video games all day long, like don't let them play video games. All day long. Okay. <laughs> you can, you have a, you have a choice in that, you know, you are the, the parent, you can make that decision Yeah. that, you know, if, if that doesn't, if, if you, if it's valuable to use it, your kids run around and play outside, then, you know, set it so that they will go and play outside. Yeah. I mean, and that's totally, you know, you didn't just cause everyone else is doing things a certain way. doesn't mean that you have to conform and do that. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about our nation is we can, you know, with, within limits, you know, we, we, we do have some, some freedom still. Yeah, and we can ultimately we can ultimately determine what's right for us and 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 go and go after it. It is a beautiful yeah, thing. Absolutely. Amazing. Hey Bill, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Great talk. I look forward to uh to our next round hopefully it'll be around a campfire or something. For sure. Yep. Yeah, we got to get you back up here, up yeah. to Idaho. I can't wait. Get you up in the mountains again. Yes, sir. Thank you, Bill. Awesome. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. And now for the Q&A. Ryan writes, how do I navigate such contradictory information? I want to be diligent, but with such stark differences of opinion by various experts in the field, how do I know who is right? There's a bit of a lead-in um, to Ryan's question, but he's basically talking about, you know, the differences between people who will advocate for high-fat and for low-fat diets. And there really does seem to be a lot of contradictory information out there. I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think you you got to take certain certain things like... If, there, if we're talking about laws of physics, like with thermogenesis, how, how hard you have to work to the consumption of energy, basically, all of these diets work on that principle. And then so you, you can know that and go like, but I'm happier eating fat. I'm not getting, I'm not having any bad side effects because of it. And so then maybe a high fat diet is perfectly fine. At the end of the day, though, if you're consuming you know, 10,000 calories a day and only burning 5,000 calories a day, you're not going to lose weight. You might deplete yourself of water stored in your muscles because uh, that's kind of the function of carbohydrates. And so on a scale, it's possible that your weight would go down, but you're not going to be burning fat, which is what I think we're all going to agree the point of a, a, a diet is to to burn fat. So, you know, you could have somebody saying omega-6 is perfectly fine. Like, like there, I know there's a, a Harvard, uh, he, he references a, a study from Harvard that says omega-6 fats are perfectly healthy. And then you could have a, a guy who, who comes on my show and says omega-6 fats are, are terrible for you. And I think for the most part, Pretty much everything is okay within moderation, unless you have a, a legitimate allergy to it. Yeah, I, I've had this argument with a gal about Monsanto, and and I think you know people got legitimately sick from some products that Monsanto created. But 
mostly people didn't get legitimately sick. For the most part, people were fine. This would be like if we had some country with a lot of people starving in it, which we do. There, there are still, you know, I, I believe 25,000 people starve to death every day on planet Earth. And, and we, we suddenly had, you know, uh, an abundance of peanuts and, and we were shipping them peanut butter because it was a good source of, of calories. And, and you had somebody have an allergic reaction and, and not do well from it. And you go like, well, that's really awful, but we, we fed more people than had allergic reactions to it. Now, obviously, if it's poison for humans in a very general sense and everybody's getting sick, that's going to be bad. And, and we would have studies to show that everybody's getting sick from this, you know. I think the studies will show that um, if you consume a lot of carcinogens, it's not good for you. And I, 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 I'm not aware of any studies that would refute that. But when we get into the idea of like high fat versus low fat and like this kind of fat, omega-6 versus omega-3, if, you, if, you're, if you're getting the, the majority of your calories from omega-6, I don't know. I don't know that that sounds like a good idea to me. It's not a diet I want to be on. Even when I was doing keto, I know I would try to err, toward, err towards um, omega-3s. And, and that could be completely irrational of me, but that's just what I would do. Not to say I wouldn't have any omega-6s. It's very hard to avoid them on keto, I think. Um, I could be totally wrong. Somebody could write in that I'm an idiot and was doing it all backwards. And that's possible too. Maybe you can avoid omega-6s altogether. But I think if you're, if you're having a little bit of stuff like that, you're going to be fine. Just like with, with like, you know, Diet Coke. I, I believed for a long time that that was poison. It's not. You know, I, I wouldn't drink liter upon liter of it every day, but nothing bad happened to me from drinking Diet Coke. And so now every now and again, I, I allow myself to have one. I still feel kind of irrationally guilty when I have it because I don't believe that it's actually harming me. I don't have any adverse reactions to it. I, I You know, there we live in a day and age where there is so much noise out there about what is true and what is not true and uh, facts versus alternate facts and all of this. And I go like at the end of the day, I, I know that um, science, you can prove how much energy you need to use to, to consume fuel. Like I, I, you can scientifically prove the amount of effort that goes into burning a calorie. Now, there's going to be a million arguments about what type of calorie it is and what kind of nutrients are in it and how it's helping us. And I just go at the end. Look, if you want to lose weight, you can eat any of these ways. You can, but if you're, if you're going to be a vegan eating French fries and, and popcorn with tons of vegetable oil on it, you might gain weight. And if you're going to be a carnivore guy who's eating you know, a quarter of a cow every day, you probably are going to gain weight. And if you're going to do low fat, but you're eating, you know, 6,000 calories in rice every day, and you're not Michael Phelps, you're probably going to gain weight. So I just try to do everything with a bit more moderation. I, I'm not hyper concerned with whether I'm consuming any omega-6s or if it's all omega-3s, I don't think about it because the results that I want, I'm getting. Now, if I become sick and I have a doctor tell me that I have some allergy to something, I might be on here doing a whole new thing saying like, hey, guess what? I, I had a bad effect from omega-6s and uh, the doctor I spoke to said they were all bad, so let's not eat them anymore. That's never going to happen. I would still just preface it all by saying that this was my experience. I think, you know, it's possible to concoct a study where given the right parameters, it will tell you anything you want it to. You can, you can game these studies. So my suggestion would be go for a week and eat mostly omega-6s or a month 
get a blood draw done, see how it's affecting you. How do you feel? Can you be objectively honest about how you feel? Are you having an adverse reaction to it? And, and go from there. I know a lot of people got sick from Monsanto and, and some of their products, and that is obviously abhorrent, but at the same time, is it, is it, is it better that we have an abundance of food now? I mean, is it better that we're, that we're getting fat versus starving? I think, I think I always would root for the abundance and then the power to determine what we want to do with it versus scarcity. You know, and, and I can immediately think of arguments that tell me this is wrong too and, and, and maybe come up with reasons why scarcity is good and it, and it creates, you know, more effort and, and, the, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think it's okay to have to put effort into th things and I don't think everything should be so easy. But, you know, when I think about people starving to death, I think... Um, 25,000 people starve to death every day, and that's a crazy stat given that we have it so good that we probably have the, the same number of people who are, who are getting obese or falling into that category every day. I don't know, that might be hyperbole, but I don't know if this is communicating or it seems um, curt. I don't mean it to seem curt. Uh, I, I just think that... Um, there's got to be some temperance with these ideas. And um, any time I hear, you know, that something is universally the same for all people, I go like, I don't know that to be true. Michael Phelps eats 10,000 calories a day. I can't do that. Every diet I've done that says everybody should eat the same exact amount every day, I'm going to call BS on because you know, we, we're all kind of, while, while certain principles apply to us, some were also still, you know, different people. And the amount of calories that I eat are completely inappropriate for anybody but me. And so I, I don't want to get into like, into that way of thinking that, that we are all, all the same and we should all do everything exactly the same because I just don't, I don't buy it. You know, the guys I look up to most in the gym, like um, Jared Feather and, and Mike Isratel, and these guys, like, if I went in there and was like, well, I should just lift the same weights as them, at the, you know, that's crazy. I can't do that. They're, they've been doing it for so much longer than me. They're, they're much stronger than I am. I would hurt myself. M my whole goal is, you know, having achieving my goals and then maintaining them long term or setting new ones that I can go after. I, I don't want to shut myself down because I try to achieve my goal with the plan of keeping it for one day and do it too quickly that I hurt myself. I, I think of this analogy all the time. And, and listen, I'm also inspired by guys like David Goggins, who, who I think... Um, is encouraging us all to push ourselves because I think that's good. I think we all can push ourselves. But I think about a, um, a, a kind of an infinite track with hurdles on it. And, and those hurdles, I, I would say, are analogies to like certain barriers we come up against in life, whether it's in our mind or, or literal ones out in the universe, bummer people or things we're thinking about or tr things that trigger us or whatever it is. And I think no matter what, that track, eventually, if you're going on this infinite track of hurdles, is going to be too long for everyone. Nobody's going to be able to just keep going over these hurdles mindlessly. Everybody is going to eventually get tired. And if we all start out sprinting, maybe there's a guy who gets way further than everybody else, but eventually it's going to catch him too, and, and he's going to not be able to do these jumps over these hurdles anymore. And so I think that my attempt is to kind of stretch them out and, and, and find a pace that I can maintain for the longest period of time so I, I can make it as far as I possibly can. And I don't think that by going all out or, or doing anything 
too extreme, you know, like deciding that an entire food group is, is off limits to me. I just think that that will make it harder for me to get as far as I need to. I don't think it will actually help me. So that is my thought on, on all the various experts out there right now. I hope this was coherent. Sometimes I'm giving these answers and I just go, what the hell are you talking about? You're just babbling at this point. So I apologize if I was babbling. That's all I have to say on that. If you have a question you would like me to answer on the podcast, please submit it to AmericanGlutton.net. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>